Good morning and welcome to each and every one of you. It's good to see you here and uh, good to see some visitors here with us as well. You know, how we look at things makes a world of difference. And uh, some of us wear glasses. And you know, if you take your glasses off, it doesn't really change, it doesn't change the reality of, of what's out there, but it does change what our perception is of that and how, what we see and so forth. And people can look at exactly the same thing and see drastically different uh, results. For example, do you see an old lady or a young lady in that picture? How many of you see an old lady? Okay, there's a few hands that go up. Who sees the young lady? More, many more. For those of you that can't see the old lady, this is her nose and her mouth, and uh, she's looking at you. So it's exactly the same picture, but, but you see it totally differently. Another example, um, and those of you that don't see the young lady, this is her chin and her nose, and she's looking out the other direction. But um, what do you see in that picture? Most of you see colorful patterns. Uh, there's, looks like zebra stripes and so forth. Well, I don't expect you all to see what I did when I, when you look closely, it's one of those 3D pictures and there's actually a three-dimensional elephant in that picture, but you have to look very closely and, uh, uh, and for a while. But, but there's things like that that you see exactly the same thing and yet you see something totally different. You know, uh, you, some of you have probably worn these silly 3D glasses. Um, to watch a video, a film or something, and uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. The glasses don't look that great, but it makes a big difference in what you see when you're watching and it influences our understanding. And this morning, I want us to think about how we read and understand scripture is through a very different lens from what the scripture was originally written and understood. Uh, there's four books, and um, I'm going to adjust this since it's bugging me, and it probably is bugging others as well. It was a bit higher than it should have been there. Uh, but there's four books that influenced and have shaped my understanding of Middle Eastern culture, especially in New Testament times. The first two I have here uh, with me, and... Uh, King Jesus Claims His Church by Finney Curavella, and When the Church Was a Family by Joseph Hellerman, recapturing Jesus' vision for authentic Christian community. And then there's two other books that I've also uh, read uh, electronically, uh, Reading the Bible with Rabbi Jesus by Lois Verberg, something like that. And then the fourth one, Misreading Scripture, with Western Eyes by E. Randolph Richards and Brandon J. O'Brien. It's interesting, all four of these say very similar um, 
things, but our Western societies think and function very differently than what the Eastern societies in which the Bible was written, and it still exists um, even today in the Middle Eastern and Eastern cultures. I believe that when we begin to see and understand more of what the original context of Scripture is in some of these areas, it comes alive in new and meaningful ways. And I've entitled this morning's message, The Church is Family. And like I said, the lens that which we see things, it really does make a difference. We simply think differently, and you might say almost completely opposite, about things than when they did, what they did in the biblical world in which Scripture was written. For example, all of us, I think, can relate to these, um, these things that are true in our world. Um, thin is beautiful. Youth is attractive. Uh, the question, does God exist, comes. It's about me, personal goals. Sunshine is happiness. Logic and reason. That's, those are components that we can relate to. In a biblical world, it's very, very different. Fat is blessing and wealth. Age is wisdom. It's not, does God exist, but whose God is greatest? It's about we and our family legacy. Rain is utter joy. Instead of logic and reason, parable and prophecy. So there's huge differences in how we even think about life from where Scripture was written. There is a term that is used uh, strong group and weak group. Strong group is what the Middle Eastern culture, Eastern culture is. Weak group is more, is, is our culture, would describe our, it's the emphasis on the group. Here's some definitions, or here's a way of, this is from Finney Curavelli. Strong group is a precise term used by anthropologists or people that study different people groups to mean Individuals putting the concerns, honor, interests, and interests of the group above their own. It's individuals deriving their identity from their standing within the group more than from personal accomplishments. And it's individuals seeing themselves as responsible to the group for their actions. I noticed several things about this. He starts out each of these with a term individuals. That's how we think. It's in terms of individuals. But it's about something bigger than the individuals. It's about the group. Here is a quote from um, Christian Origins and Cultural Anthropology that describes what, a, um, what uh, this, this means in a lot of ways, what strong group means. What this means is, first of all, that the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels, is, feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. 
the group has priority over individual members. That's how, that's the culture in which the New Testament was written. That's the culture in which Jesus was born and raised. It's the culture of the early church. And it's very different than how we think today. In very general terms, and the last sentence there is probably the one that, you know, the group has priority over individual members. That just sums it up. But we're faced in a lot of ways with uh, three major life decisions, uh, if you will. And this is probably oversimplifying it. But vocation, what am I going to do with my life? And this, for us in the West, is foundational for our identity. Our identity is, uh, is, is in what we do. Our spouse, who am I going to spend my life with? And our residence, uh, where am I going to live? In strong group settings, these decisions are made for individuals. They don't make those decisions themselves. The group makes that. For us, we make those decisions. But as I was studying and thinking about this, you know, how much stress would be eliminated if those decisions were not, we did not need to make. There's a lot of stress that is put on individuals to try to figure out some of these things on our own. Joseph Hellerman, now switching a bit, so, so we've talked about what the strong group is, and now how, what's a description for our culture and our environment the, that we find ourselves living in, our society. This is from the Church as a Family. Social scientists have a label for the pervasive cultural orientation of modern American society that makes it so difficult for us to stay connected and grow together in community with one another. They call it, and this is the social scientists, call it radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or in the home. That's expressing pretty much total opposite of what the previous quote was on a description of a strong group family. Which is right, which is wrong, I'm not saying that one is necessarily right, the other is wrong. It is totally different, and it, it influences deeply how we think. And when we understand that the New Testament was written from one perspective, how we read it today, it, it does affect us. So let's just step back for a few minutes and take a look at some other significant differences between the biblical times and the Middle Eastern culture or the strong group orientation, and the 21st century Western individualistic culture. And I know that this is a bit hard to read, especially from in the back, but <clears throat> it's just a comparing, again, the Eastern strong group orientation and their characteristics contrasted with Western or even uh, individualistic. And a few of them that really stood out to me, and I'm not going to read these all, values rest and relaxation. 
values activity. Uh, I think that that is pretty obvious. Passive and accepting in the Eastern culture, assertive and confronting here in the West. Uh, accept what is, seek change. Uh, freedom of silence, freedom of speech. Uh, that's an interesting one to think about, that there's freedom in silence. Marry first, then love. Love first, then marry. Focus on consideration of others' feelings. Focus on self-awareness, our own needs. Learn to do with less material assets. Attempt to get more of everything. Um, on down here, we have uh, cherish the wisdom of years, cherish the vitality of youth. And then the last one, retire to enjoy the gift of one's family or retire to enjoy the rewards of one's work. There's just a big difference in how people in the East think versus how we think here in the West. We can't change the culture into which we were born. And, but I do think that we can and we should recognize and acknowledge that there are differences. And so we can't eliminate the influence that we have, but we can pay attention and be intentional about considering how the Eastern perspective might enhance our understanding of language as well as events in Scripture. <clears throat> Finney Caravelli go, uh, also says this, strong group societies uphold honor as a cardinal virtue. Weak group societies hold up pleasure as a cardinal virtue. The honor versus pleasure spectrum, and you know, you can have extremes at either end, serves as a useful scale to measure a society's strong group status. Residents in the United States generally strive after pleasure. Much of Asian society is rooted in honor. Just looking at those two words in scripture, honor is used more than a hundred times in the New Testament alone. Pleasure only a couple of times, a handful of times. So there's something about that honor is something that is important in Scripture, and do we even pay attention to the word when we come across it? Uh, I wasn't paying close enough attention. It may have been in the passage that Ivan read uh, this morning even. But we just kind of gloss over it. Um, but there's the thing of honoring parents, honoring the Sabbath, Honoring government leaders. Um, there's just various ways that honor is used. How is it that we view things? While a highly individualistic society dominates our culture, there's also within our culture very strong group segments that characterize more what is described uh, as, as the strong group. And some of these are negative and some of these are positive. For example, gangs. Gangs is a very strong group subculture, if you will. Their identity, their, they live for what is, but it's always for the good of the gang. It's not about personal ambition, but it's about, about the gang. Cults is another uh, strong group type organization, if you will, 
uh, orientation, the Jim Jones, David Koresh, um, Manson, all the, the, the people are so committed to the group that they don't even care about themselves. But then beyond that, in the military, you know, uh, that is a bad, that's a very strong group type orientation and mentality. Even among the first responders, like police and firefighters, that there's that, if you want to call it brotherhood, that, uh, that group sense that exists there. Then orchestras. You know, you have all these different instruments, but it's only in, this, in the context of a group and really working together closely that anything of beauty or value comes out of that. Sports teams. Um, team sports would be an example of, of where the, the good of the group and, uh, and so forth. And then uh, I thought of like even Apple Computer. You know, often Apple Computer is described as people that have, there's a cult-like following. And I mean, I don't mean that in a negative way, but there's that uh, commitment uh, that comes with that. You know, not every strong group scenario is necessarily good, but, but there, are, there are examples within our culture that we can see that. Even some corporations, I mean, I mentioned Apple, but otherwise as well. The early church was established in a strong group culture. This can be seen in the Gospels, it can be seen in Acts, and it can be seen in the epistles, in the letters that were written. It was written in the context of the group having priority over the individual. When we understand that, reading Acts 4, when it talks about them going from house to house, breaking bread, selling their goods and pooling the money and so forth, all of that makes a lot more sense. That's, that's the context in which they were even thinking. They were putting their, the group's best interest ahead of their own interests. The teaching throughout the New Testament validates the importance of the strong group orientation within the church. And I think it's obvious when we are aware of it and we know, start paying attention and looking for it. I would challenge you, when you read scripture, notice the nouns and pronouns. And no, this is not an English lesson. But pay attention to whether they're singular or plural. Many times, it's talking plural. It's not talking uh, singular. It's not talking individually. The second, uh, in English language, the second person pronouns don't distinguish singular or plural. It's the word you can be, mean singular or it can mean plural. Uh, the G Greek and Hebrew languages make a distinction. And in most cases, at least in the New Testament, they are plural. So when you see the pronoun you in the New Testament and you're reading it, rather than individualizing or assuming that it's for me, think of it in terms of that it's for us. It's for the church, for the entire group. And, uh, and then pay attention to the other plural words as well. And I'm going to just, for a couple of examples, in 1 Peter 2, 
you are a chosen race. And, you know, I have tended, I'm confessing that I tend to read it, this is about me, or it's talking to me. You are a chosen race, but race is, a, is plural. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's not talking about individual believers in making this statement. He's talking about a group of people. He's talking that we're a people, we're a nation, we're a race, a priesthood. Um, He's talking about much more than just individually. 1 Thessalonians 5, a very familiar passage that I often personalize for myself. But when you read it as a group, uh, I think it expands and, and deepens the meaning. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And then in Philippians one, a familiar passage. I thank my God, and here Paul is personally, so in singular, he's thanking, but he's writing to a group of believers at Philippi. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in my prayer of mine for you all. Again, all is a plural, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And this next verse is one that I have often claimed for myself, and I'm sure that you have too. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That's talking about the church. It's not talking about an individual. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Reading scripture through the lens of a strong group mindset, is, it takes work for us. It's difficult for us because it's not how we think. But I think that, that it's important that we, uh, that we do. Talking now a little bit about family loyalties and um, the depth of family loyalties in the Eastern, Middle Eastern culture was very eye-opening to me. It's difficult for me to understand or even grasp to the extent that these profound family loyalties shaped how individuals lived their lives. And when you meet a stranger, um, you know, how does that conversation go? Um, You know, often we exchange names, and one of the first questions is, what do you do? That's our identity. That's how we think. That's how we, uh, our identity and who we are is closely tied to our vocation. But in Bible times, it was tied 
to the family. Hence, the genealogies in Scripture. It was very important as to who was from where. And even the introductions of characters in Scripture. Think about King David. How often is he referred to as King David when he's being referenced like outside the story of... It's usually he's referenced as the son of Jesse, not as King David, because that was more important than the fact that he was king of Israel. We see this in the New Testament. The twelve disciples. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, and we'll come to that, uh, the brothers are important as well, whom he gave the name Bonerges, which that is sons of thunder, again sons of Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Simon the Zealot, it's tied to who his occupation, if you will, his vocation. But the others, uh, the ones that are more than a name, is referred to by their father's name. And then a couple of chapters later, they were challenging who Jesus was, and they said, is this not the carpenter? So that's vocation. The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. So that's how Jesus was known, and uh, that was his identity. He was the son of Mary and the brother of these four men. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So as we look at the New Testament, uh, in that world, the group took priority over the individual. In the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his blood family. Your blood family, and this does not include in-laws, blood family. It truly was that distinct. In the New Testament world, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage. It was the bond between siblings. The central value that characterized ancient family relations was the obligation to demonstrate undying loyalty toward one's blood brothers and sisters. And the most treacherous act of human disloyalty was not disloyalty to one's spouse. It was the betrayal of one's brother or sister. As we begin to understand some of these realities, the words used in Scripture to describe the church, to describe fellow believers, suddenly takes on a whole different level of meaning. It's a lot more than just terminology. It is significant. And it deeply, it's deeply connected to these cultural realities. The family terms such as brother and sister, mother, adoption, inheritance, sons, child, or children is literally used hundreds of times in the New Testament describing the church. And while this terminology has become very familiar and very common to us, the, the fact that these family connections just don't carry the significance with us today that it did 
at the time that this was written, and actually even continues to do so in these cultures today. Consider the, these verses from Mark 10. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold more now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Notice what Jesus is, is saying here. He is their blood relation. They're asking, cut that tie. That can't be your priority. The blood relations is not there anymore. He says you need to leave house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, and even house and lands. But then he goes on, but he's going to give back more. It's going to replace that with brothers, well, actually with houses, not just house, but houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children. However, one thing that's missing there that's replaced with, there is no, father is mentioned here, but is not mentioned down here. God is our father, but the fellow believers are our brothers and sisters and mothers and children. Um, it's coming out, but the group comes first. Josephus made an interesting statement, and he was a Jewish historian, but not a Christian, as I understand history. And this is what he says. At these temple sacrifices, prayers for the welfare of the community must take precedence over those for ourselves. For we are born for fellowship, and he who sets its claims above his private interests is specially acceptable to God. Think about that. This was from a Jewish perspective, obviously, but the idea was that the welfare of the community and even our prayers for the community, for the group, is more important than praying for ourselves. It's just a very different way of thinking about it. The church is family. Jesus initiated radical cultural upheaval when he superseded the deep family ties with priority loyalties and shifted those toward the church and fellow believers. And, you know, given the fact that we have diminished value of family loyalties from what they did back then, maybe more of a cultural equivalent would be that our fellow church members should supersede that even of our spouse, of our marriage partner. That might come a little bit closer to understanding what Jesus was asking of early believers. Or maybe even our minor children, if you will. But Jesus' call to follow him required that the disciples set aside or at least make secondary their primary loyalties to their blood family and instead focus those priorities and make those loyalties 
in their, on their new family and the kingdom of God, their church family. It's no wonder disciples walked away and said, this is, uh, this is too much. Luke 14, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, I don't think that Jesus is, the word that hate is used in Scripture does not mean, or in this kind of scenario, it does not mean that we hate. It means more that it's not our primary loyalty. Whoever does not put as secondary his own father, mother, wife, and children and brothers and sisters cannot be my disciple. We're not a strong group society where the call to forsake our blood family, our, our deepest loyalties, or our, uh, for our new family makes any sense. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to how we live. However, I believe that we are still called to forsake those deepest loyalties, whatever they are, and have those new loyalties directed toward our divine family. And these deepest loyalties probably vary significantly, but might also be similar is, for example, we're to forsake our individualistic need to have my expectations met for the divine family. We're to forsake our need to personally derive a benefit from something. We're to forsake our need to experience or feel emotion in a certain way. We're to forsake our personal ambitions for the long-term benefit of the church family. We're to forsake cultural gauges of success and popularity and instead focusing on faithfulness and obedience. We're to forsake being self-centered and become others-centered. When our eyes are open to the strong group orientation that is evidenced throughout Scripture, the individualistic... Uh, I don't need anyone else, I can do this myself, philosophy just doesn't make sense. And I, I believe that it, it doesn't make sense, it doesn't work, and I think it's doomed for failure. And I wonder how much that speaks to where, why the church is where it is, because we simply need each other. Eugene Peterson made an interesting, thought-provoking statement. <clears throat> Healthy spiritual growth requires the presence of the other, the brother, the sister, the pastor, the teacher. A private, profoundly isolated life cannot grow. The two or three who gather together in Christ's name keep each other sane. Spiritual growth cannot take place in isolation. It is not a private thing. I think that there's a lot of good wisdom there for American Christianity today. But thinking a bit more about the church as a family, Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Maybe one way we can kind of get our hands around all of this is that we are adopted brothers and sisters in the family of God. Adoption is something we somewhat understand. Our 
as adoption, as being adopted children, our blood family becomes secondary to the family to where we were born. We can still be part of the same family, but it is in the family of God. And, um, you know, I was just thinking, and I'm not sure this analogy really carries out, but adoption is a word that is used numerous times in scriptures. But, you know, many times at some point in a person's life that was adopted, they want to know about their blood relatives. And in a lot of cases, when that contact's established, they quickly appreciate the fact that they were adopted and were spared of that. But, you know, even the best unregenerate family can't compare to the blessings of being in the family of God. Um, and it, I think it just gives us an analogy to, to consider. Galatians 4 also talks about this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Again, the term, the family terms that are used to describe the church, the family of God, adoption, sons, uh, Abba Father, and so forth. And we're an heir of God. And then Romans 8 restates some of this as well. And uh, I want to focus especially on this last part. Here it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The church is very unique, and it's a unique family of adopted Believers, a new family into which we have been placed by God. 1 Corinthians 12, very familiar verses there, but uh, just several verses there. But God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that it may, there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, there's the word honor, all rejoice together. You're the body of Christ and individually members of it. <clears throat> Again, just making the, the, the point that we are to esteem others appropriately, not to look down on others because of their race, their religious background, their education, their wealth, lack thereof, their social status, but they are all equally valuable and important in the body of Christ the family of God as fellow adoptees. It's also unity is mentioned in here. There would be no division in the body. And um, I have just a little bit of an illustration on this. I uh, don't know that it's the best illustration, but I think it, it gives us a picture of that in our Western culture, Individually, people of the body are a little bit like BBs. You know, they're very similar, yet they're fiercely independent and can only be contained in an artificial means. You know, they stay together when they're in something. But if I were to dump these out on here, uh, they would go all over the place. And I think that that 
in a lot of ways characterizes a typical American church. It's a group unified only by proximity. Uh, they're close together and they're kind of together and so forth. But when you contrast that with, a, with believers that are deeply committed to each other, it's like family members being a strong group family. Um, how about this? Uh, looks very similar to the BBs, but when, you know, when there's, everything is well, there's unity, there's cohesion, uh, they stay together, it's impressive, it's attractive, but even when hard times come, you know, when hard times come here, you just maybe as well throw it up in the air. But when hard times come here, it may lose its shape, but it stays together. It's unified. Uh, it may not be as pretty as it was, but it, uh, it's, it endures, it sticks together. And I think that that's a good way that we're to persevere within the body of Christ. We're to stick with it. We're to be committed to each other, like family members. Um, you know, there's times when, um, when it's required for us to stick together. But in the end, we're always going to be stronger when we stick together than if we don't. And you know, you can take one of these off of here, and it's really not that any different than a BB. Um, it's not that impressive. But it's, it's when they're together that it's impressive. Jean Veneer made an interesting quote, and we'll wrap things up here. <clears throat> there is no ideal community. Community is made up of people with all their richness, but also with their weakness and poverty. Of people who accept and forgive each other, who are vulnerable with each other. Humility and trust are more at the foundation of community than perfection. And that's a good reminder for, for me, it's a good reminder for all of us, that community can only happen when you accept people for who they are and are willing to stick with it and not just simply walk away. So what is God calling us to? And I want to leave you with several thoughts related to this. First of all, I believe that God is calling us to a fuller understanding of what the early church was called to give up and to become. And I'm not saying that we haven't done that, but I think that there's things there that we maybe haven't because of our lens that we're looking through, have not seen as clearly as we could. And, and maybe there's more for us to understand there. Secondly, we, there needs to be a willingness to sacrifice and to give up our individualistic ambitions for Jesus Christ and his family. And then thirdly, a desire to find ways to incorporate to incorporate and to strengthen the strong group characteristics that God desires in our local family of believers. And notice I'm not saying that we become a strong group society. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying let's learn what we can from the New Testament in which this was written and then find ways of how we can, uh, we can build on that within our local congregation. Taking an earlier 
definition, one of the first definitions that I had of the strong group. And substituting the word church in there is pretty enlightening and gives something significant to ponder. And by, say, by substituting this word, I'm not saying this is how it should be. But I do believe that this description probably more closely characterizes the early church than what we may want to, uh, than what we might be comfortable with. And so this is that definition from Christian origins and uh, cultural anthropology paraphrased. What this means is, first of all, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual members. Perhaps the individualistic versus strong group thinking explains some of the things we see in the modern American church. We have the freedom of religion as of now. We aren't persecuted yet. But it se and it seems like the church has a greenhouse-like environment and should prosper in exceptional ways, but generally it doesn't. And then there's Christians in other parts of the world where there's persecution, and they seem to be doing a lot better. Why? And one of my thoughts is that when believers have the perception that church is there to meet my personal needs and expectations, my desires, we just see a huge gap in the way that the church was designed because the blueprint of the church, as outlined in the New Testament, is far more strong group oriented than weak group or individualistic oriented. And so our willingness to forsake our individualistic mindsets for a stronger group mindset, I believe is what God is calling us to. So just reiterating here again, will we allow God to give us these three things that I had previously uh, mentioned? I'd like for you to take out your Mennonite hymnals and uh, I'm going to have Daryl lead us in number 386. But before he does that, I would just like to read uh, read a little bit, uh, or a couple of the verses here, or maybe all three of them, just quickly. And it talks about in here, again, the, that family connection. Heart with heart, heart with loving heart united, meant to know God's holy will, let his love in us be ignited. More and more our spirits fill. He, the head, we his members, we reflect the light he is. He's the master, we're the brothers. He is ours and we are his. May we all so love each other and all selfish claims deny that the brother for the brother will not hesitate to die. Even so, our Lord has loved us. For our lives he shed his blood. Still he grieves and still he suffers when we mar the brotherhood. Since, O oh Lord, you have demanded our lives that our lives should show, so we wait to be commanded further forth into the world to go. Kindle us in love's compassion so that everyone may see in our fellowship the promise 
of the new humanity. Let's stand together as we sing this.